Good day, everyone. Welcome to another episode. Today, as you might know, my name is again Daily. I'm here with Grace. Hello, Grace. Hello again. And of course, our guest, Dr. Alexander Kurtz. Welcome. Hi. How are you today? Tired. Yeah. 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 It's been it's been a very busy uh, busy block uh, three. This is the last uh, the last week, almost the last day as well. So, uh, yeah, I'm absolutely. Uh, splattered i have to say so i decided to take the afternoon off and go look at art what what art are we talking modern art most likely cool yeah so i think i'll cycle to the vorlinde museum which is not too far from here and um just see what's up by yourself yes on my bicycle yeah <laughs> just on my by myself i like to do that anyway because it's nice to um use art to sort of disentangle from your from your brain as it were put you in a different state. That's really what art's supposed to do anyway, I think. So I have to use it to my advantage, see if I can relax a bit. Yeah. Is it especially about the modern art that disentangles your brain? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's something to be said about, um, you know, any any type of artistic expression that, that triggers some sort of aesthetic appreciation, I guess, more broadly. So it can be, you know, can be Renaissance art or Golden Age stuff as well, right? Because for its technical exquisiteness and so on. But I, I tend to enjoy it most when I'm when I'm uh, sort of in mid-20th or late-20th century art, sometimes quite conceptual, performance art sometimes as well. That um, is sort of, you know, you, you look at things and you try to interpret them and you can't. And, um, you know, in our line of work, we, we try to do the opposite, right? We try to look at things and then interpret them, right? And master that in some sense. But this is this is really an environment where that's not meant to happen, or at least not in a straightforward, linear way. So, um, yeah, that's why I think, you know, certainly modern art is very suitable for that. Yeah. Have you ever given making art a, a try? Or is it just the appreciation of looking that's at it? That's an excellent question. No, no, I haven't. I haven't. <coughs> I, I, I draw a bit, but... Um, very modestly so, and I'm afraid rather sort of realistic in in approach and and goal as well. So, not not along the lines of sculpting or um, or painting or anything like that. I, I I don't exclude that I might would you know try to like and do it. So see, especially stone sculpting would be something I would uh, would be keen to maybe give a try at some point. Also because that you know is also part of my my archaeological interests, obviously. So. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very good question. The thing, yeah, hmm. yeah. A lot of people in my environment have been asking me this actually, in terms of you know, not so much what are your hobbies, uh, and then you know, a very long uh comes out my mouth like I well my work right, uh, isn't that enough? And then people say no. Um, so yeah, some sort of creative expression would be would be I think both suitable to relax perhaps and also to explore different things be tactile with your body and then secretly also maybe have an interest for your work as well yeah that makes sense so in in your hobbies without the uh, does it include any sports as well it used to yeah 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 i used to play a lot of basketball uh in, in a former life very long time ago um but that stopped um basically when i uh, came to study archaeology here I, I you know a long time ago obviously I, I i i looked at leiden to see how the basketball was but i was going back and forth between my parents at the time still quite often on the weekends and most of the games and the competitions would be on the weekend so that really made it very difficult to keep combining it but yeah during my teenage years 
I played basketball, oh gosh, about six six hours a day or so, endlessly. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. You're very tall. <laughs> yeah. And, wow, yeah, I, I, I have to admit, I don't know anything about basketball mm. because I tend to be very short. <laughs> but <laughs> but it, that's, yeah, that's cool. It, it's quite a shame, I think, that education kind of ruins the sports thing for me i i experienced exactly the same all right yeah i used to be a fanatic triathlete oh really but because of studying and because of now Mm. it it just doesn't i went cycling yesterday okay good a short little 30 kilometers all right which is yeah 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 that's true it's one of these things that i think in the for example the u.s academic system they they have a better handle on where they where they really try to combine you know uh let's say academic achievement with athletic achievement as well um, it's really sort of you know a package deal almost at many U.S. universities. Doesn't mean you have to obviously, but it's just mainly encouraged a lot, right? You see people running and doing sports everywhere. And, you know there are the track and field installations uh, wherever you look. And here, well, we have the University Sports Center. Long pause, uh, and it's otherwise not really seems to be a facet of of Leiden University's student life, does it? I mean, I don't know. It it, it always seemed to be a bit sort of a side hobby almost yeah you have the associations of course like new york and elsa right rowing and that yeah, is but yeah, i true. i i honestly don't know if that's more about the sports or more about the drinks <laughs> to i don't know but it always to me it always occurs to be more like a social club than actual sports mm. in it all right um let's do some quick fire questions camping or hotels Wow. Uh, I, I do enjoy both. Uh, that's probably the wrong answer, but um, I shall say camping then. Beaches or forest? Forest, definitely. Do you have a favorite food? Um, shall I say cannellonis? That's quite nice. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Books or movies? I, it, it would have to be books, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, books everywhere in my life. I've heard this story that the movers estimated that you have about 3,000 kilograms of books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. They're underway at the moment, actually, so bound to arrive in a couple of weeks. So it'll be quite uh, quite a scene, I think, uh, <laughs> if you happen to be around. If you see people carrying boxes for three hours on end, uh, that's me. <laughs> cool. Have you read them all? No, no, I've not read them all, but I, 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 I know them all. So if, if you know, if I look at them, I'll know what they're about, right? And it's, of course, it's a reference collection, right? It's not, it's not fictional, a fictional library. So, uh, you know, a work of fiction, let's say, in terms of a library. So I, I wouldn't have read all of them, but um, you know, I know where to look if I need something. I guess that's the most important skill to have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's interesting, actually. I mean, the number of books grows and grows and grows. Not so much anymore these days, but uh, you still have this sort of network in your head of of where what is and what you have and what you don't have. I think I I may have bought one book ever that I already had, um, and that's quite odd, actually, that you're able to sort of remember all those individual publications and sort of see one somewhere and immediately know, yeah, I have that, or or you don't. Um, but it's it's part of this sort of, I think this way of of structuring your memory, right? Which is the visual thing largely as well, where you see well that type of information. You know, here's a book in your office here next to the mic on the Olmex, for example. I would know exactly whether I have this or not, or whether I have other books related to it or not. 
and it doesn't really serve any other purpose than to help me with my work. That's an interesting way of, um, that's a way I never thought about uh, my own book collection before. I always think like, so like that pile right there is mm. a pile I'm probably going to buy eventually. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is market. yours. All yeah. right. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I'm always, actually that pile was a lot bigger and I've slowly been getting it smaller and I, I, even though, of course, you know, the books from the book market are very uh, affordable, I, uh, I always think, well, I don't want to buy it if I'm not going to read the whole thing from start to finish. Mm. But I actually like that approach. Like, it's kind of nice to have your own little collection of things. If you're researching something, you can refer to that. Yeah. So yeah. that might have just encouraged me to buy all those books. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. My pleasure, Terra. Um, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, these things, and this is a this is a, a question of privilege as well, right? In terms of you know disposable income and all these types of things. Whether you say I go to a you know university library to to lend the book or to actually have it yourself, and it, it's partly a function of how much you think you're going to be using it, or whether you're really interested in that topic. Um, but it it does really help to have something you know at the ready to be able to grab it on a shelf and, and then use it immediately rather than, you know, run off to a library, you know, reserve, check the book out, wait an hour before you get it. And it just tends to interrupt your flow of thought. And when you're writing, for example, it's, it's typically my experience. So that's why I, you know, decided to sort of start buying things myself um, to, to sort of prevent that problem, to be able to sort of keep thinking while I'm writing. And when I think of books or references, or comments by authors that I know are somewhere in my library, I just grab it, cite it, and move on, right? And not all of this stuff is obviously available as PDFs. I mean, that's the difference with journal publications that you can just, you know, you just Google Scholar them and, and poof, you have what you need, right? But with our line of work, certainly in my area, uh, which is which is the archaeology of the Americas, there's a lot of materials that are either not at the library or they're in book shape or they're, you know, as, as book chapters published. Uh, sometimes in Spanish, obviously, because they might be Latin American in origin, and and there's really no other way other than to acquire them yourself. So that's what I've done over, yeah, well, I guess since 1996 or so, over a very long time, uh, stacking my my backpacks full of books when I was traveling back and having scales with me to see if the if the customs office isn't going to grab me because my suitcases are too heavy and all these types of things. So, yeah, <laughs> all kinds of crazy adventures with books. So you say that you've been traveling to the Americas a lot. Would you say that your favorite holiday destination is on that part of the world? Um, well, it's it's bound to be, isn't it? I mean, I've I've traveled a lot in the last uh, 20 odd years or so and of course it's always been westward right um, either North America for conferences or, or other types of visits uh, or for research to middle and South America so I I've, I've really not traveled much very widely you know beyond that you know I've been to China and other places but not you know not extensively so so I was thinking about this yesterday actually when I was thinking I might you know I should at some point see if I can get to Nicaragua, which where a lot of my research has been based in recent years, and go there not having to run field work or, you know, think of exporting materials or bringing things back or doing something in a museum, but just to go there to, you know, rent a car and explore the country more widely, as, I, as I've really never done. It's kind of odd because I've been there countless times, and I've often had students with me on field work who would use, you know, the weekends... Uh, when they would have time off 
to go to the beach or travel around a bit or, you know, hop on a bus and go to God knows where in the country. And when they would come back, usually very tired on Sunday night, uh, they would tell me where they've been. And I would say, oh, wow, yeah, cool. I've never been there. And they would look at me funny because they're thinking this guy knows the country like the back of his hand. But I don't. I don't really. So, yeah, I guess I guess I do like to go to places that I kind of know the infrastructure, right, where I speak the language. And that's an advantage with Latin America, of course, because I've been to so many places there that I, I sort of know how the country functions. And that facilitates also to relax, right, to have a, have a holiday, be able to know where you can go and where the good places are without necessarily having to worry about, you know, patrimony permits or all these types of things. So I think that would be, and yeah, I mean, come on, Latin America is a lovely place to travel to anyway, isn't it? Whether you go to Mexico or Brazil or, or Argentina, you have, you know, very large cities with a lot of cultural life. You have beaches everywhere. You know, there's even archaeological sites if you want to go and see them, right? So, Not yeah. to mention the food. Absolutely, yeah, that's another good point. Yeah, 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 precisely. Not so much in Nicaragua. Sorry, my Nicaraguan friends. But in, in Mexico, for sure, the, the cuisine is, of course, world-renowned. Um, and you can, yeah, yeah, enjoy that every day, you know? Absolutely. Because you you say you travel back and forth, or do you also sometimes live in in... Well, let's say South America, Mesoamerica. Right. Well, I've never properly lived there in terms of having a house and, and sort of residing there. But I've, I've, I've spent, you know, I don't know, in total uh, various years there, obviously. I think for my, when I was an undergraduate student and, um, you know, let's say what, what, what you might call the bachelor degree at the time was still four full academic years. Uh, and the government would subsidize you for five. So everybody studied for five years rather than four, sort of smearing out their, their course load over those five years. I went on field work various times uh, to Mexico specifically um, and sometimes half a year on end, right? And, of course, it's not like you're doing field work six months in a row. Right? So you travel around, you know, you have some intense period where you do research here and there. But it also gives you the chance to, to get to know what Latin America is, and in this case, Mexico, for example, gets another language, which I didn't speak very well at the time, gets another customs, the food, also to have your intestines get accustomed to the food. That's also very important. Um, and so to sort of to really find your place, you know, in those countries. And that's sometimes, you know, I, I worry a little bit with the, the shortness of the programs these days, academic programs, that students are so, let's say, efficient and optimized in how they plan things that they sort of, it's like hit and run, right? They go in, do their field work, and they might have a couple of days to do this and that, and then they're off again. And that, you know, it gets the job done, and you might get your data for your thesis and all that, but it doesn't really allow you to begin to understand, you know, the culture and the politics and, uh, and, and the ways of social life in, in Latin American countries, which is so really important if you want to know, you know, why you're doing that archaeology anyway and how it matters to people, right? So... Um, the more time you can spend there, the better it is. But I never properly lived there, but I, you know, I move around um, with with great ease as I would do here in Leiden, for example, as well. Yeah, yeah, because when you mention six months in Mexico, that sounds more like an exchange than an excavation to mm. me. Yeah, and that is well, in one way, amazing that you had that opportunity to do that. But in, right. in the other way, it also makes me kind of jealous. No way. I mean, I spent six months in Italy last summer, which okay. is, uh, sorry, six weeks. Okay, six, oh, six weeks. weeks. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is, which for me was already quite long. Yeah. And, but to be able to do that for six months, that would be the dream, I guess. Yeah. That yeah. is like, because you, 
actually get to know I think it really adds to what we as archaeologists say about ourselves, that we're world citizens <laughs> and that we try to understand yeah. other people's cultures from a, well, usually, well, in this case, our Western European backgrounds. Right. That doesn't always make sense, especially when you go to places that are so, well, can I say different? No, not per se, but like so. Well, yeah, I mean, there are there are stark differences in many ways, you know, in diff between different countries. I mean, it's, it's perfectly fine to acknowledge that, and it's about being able to bridge it, right? Being able to see how you how you translate literally or figuratively, you know, that distance between between you know different communities, such as your the one you're coming from and the one you're going to. And that's that's the key thing about communicating and linking up with people. Um, yeah, no, ab absolutely. I mean, that, and then even before that, you know, I remember in the early 90s, students would easily go for a year. You know, they would uh, they would live in communities for for stretches on end. And, and as you say, that wasn't, you know, a situation where people were intensely working every day on something. It was also about just living with people, right? So what they uh, use the Spanish term convivir. So it's, 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 it's living together, not in a house, but being together as a you know as forming part of a community which is very important if you want to build up uh, trust with people obviously right if you want to see how um, how they respond to your plans and your ideas um, uh, and you can't do that in one conversation right you can't really do it in two either you have to you have to be there and you have to give you have to give people the time to get used to you yeah right? yeah especially with well, I guess locals in a way they tend to be quite closed I think. I mean, I spent mm. I spent some time in mm -hmm. Borneo in an orphanage and okay. in the jungles of Indonesia, and right. I really noticed that as soon as you start speaking the language, mm -hmm. that then only you are incorporated in the well, not even incorporated, but that you can like see the culture. Right. It opens up a bit more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and I think that's you know partly it's understandable why communities. Uh, maybe closed because yeah, oftentimes they had poor experiences with outsiders coming in or the outside world in general, right? I mean, certainly in the case of the Americas, if you're working in, let's say, largely indigenous communities, you know, those are, are faced with, you know, massive problems on a daily basis, right? Economically, socially, ethnically, you know, in terms of discrimination and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so small wonder that they're, they're a little apprehensive about, you know, outsiders. Uh, certainly if, you know, in my case, this weird tall Dutchman shows up, you know, who seems to be interested in all kinds of stuff that makes no sense. Um, um, but he might be useful for the local basketball team, right? Which is, you know, <laughs> which is what I've been contracted for various times uh, at the time. Uh, in these communities, which was great fun, you know, you're, you're playing basketball with all these, you know, individuals that are maybe I don't know, 160, 165 <laughs> in length, <laughs> and um, you know, it was basically all balls to Alex, right? Wins the prize, um, and that kind of thing also happens, right? So it's not it's not necessarily always about, as I say, it's not always about doing archaeology or, or getting your field data secure. It's also about connecting with people. I think that's what this. You know why that, why these course programs in archaeology are so are so meaningful because they they should allow for people to reach out elsewhere and get to know something completely different, so they can get to know those places, but also maybe get to know a little bit more about themselves. Yeah, that's also very important, right? I'm sure if you've traveled to Borneo, you know it made you reflect on who you are and where you came from and what your assumptions were and all these types of things. Yeah, and that's that's the relevance of travel, I think, in general. Yeah, especially with. 
well, in my case, Borneo is, of course, one of the Dutch colonies. I was mm. in the Indonesian part. Right. And if you look at, for example, the language and the things they do, it's just you see colonialism through that. Mm. And that is, well, it... Yeah, I mean, you know, the the reality of of coloniality is, of course, that it's 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 also at the same time very flexible and and has the capacity to incorporate a great deal of things, right? So um, that allows communities to continue in part their cultural practices and their ideas and the, and the way they look at the world, despite being colonized, quote unquote, right? Um, so yes, definitely very problematic, and it has you know <coughs> dramatically shifted uh, the nature of indigenous societies across the Americas. You know, in terms of their right for self determination, all these types of things, and um, you know the um, aspects of territoriality um, and uh, yeah, just self determination more broadly. Um, but at the same time, you know they're still there, and they've managed to wrestle through all these colonial conditions uh, for centuries. Uh, and now, and this is interesting also in terms of where archaeology, I think, can play a part, they're looking at you know, some of these deeper histories to see how they can reinvigorate cultural identities, right? And, and for example, in, in, you know, in language revitalization programs is, is a very big one. You know, indigenous languages in, across the Americas, of course, widely spoken, very divergent, very pluriform, many of them also very threatened. Um, but now through... In part, you know, the involvement of, of linguists in the field, for example, there's lots of programs where young people also are, are interested in languages, not because, you know, maybe their grandparents tell them to learn the language, otherwise, you know, you're deviating from the customs of your forefathers, because that's not very attractive to young people, right? You want to make it attractive through popular culture and, you know, by by using the language on pamphlets, on radios, on, on, on social media, you know, all that type of thing. And that's happening more and more. And that's also where archaeology, I think, can play a part by, by, by looking at you know, those rich indigenous histories that are sometimes very localized, where we can pinpoint communities, you know, in the 13th, 14th century or something that played a very important political role in a region that are now really small hamlets, right, in the 21st century that are seemingly, you know, a dime a dozen. But actually, those histories are often quite unique. And if you can bring that to those communities, you know, not as a gift coming from archaeology, but basically to sort of reveal what was already there. Um, I think it, you know, that that's a very important aspect of our work, right? Because it, it really, va it's. A, I know this is a trope, but it really valorizes what we do, right? It brings it into something that is important at the local level. <laughs> uh, I think it's always good to sort of you know, ask that question: Why? Why do we do these things, right? So you. And if you do that, it's also good to self-reflect and question your own assumptions about, you know, how you came into archaeology and what your ideas initially were uh, and maybe how they're changing uh, over years, right? It's yeah. very important. Don't disregard your own persona and your background in that situation because that is ultimately what brought you here as well, right? Yeah. How does that idea translate to you personally? Yeah, I, I think that's a, there's a layered answer to that question, Grace. I mean, uh, of course, you know, I I guess I used to say that, you know, I always liked being outdoors and I grew up in a in a fairly green sort of nature-rich environment. So I like to be outdoors, I like to cycle around. And at the same time, I've always been interested in, in history. You know, my father's always been interested in history and he was always, you know, in investigating the Second World War. That was his big thing, right? So I, I guess somewhere down the line, I, I, I picked up that bug somewhere. So what I usually try to say is that, well, archaeology is sort of at the inter, yeah, the intersection of, of, of being outdoors and being interested in history, isn't it, right? Because if it's just history, you might do fieldwork in an archive. 
nice as well, but you know, there's an added value of being outside. So I guess that's that's my traditional answer saying why I why I came to archaeology. Um, at the same time, you know, if I if I questioned this further, I would say I wasn't really all too sure what I wanted when I was what nineteen. Um, uh, I, I looked at you know different course programs here at Leiden as well as at Amsterdam. Also, for example, ancient history is something I looked at, which quickly seemed a little too um, regimented and sort of. Um, solidified already in terms of its approach and what it wanted to relay to students in terms of information. And archaeology was much more open, right? much more varied. Certainly here in Leiden, we have these, We have, at the time and still partly today, we have these encyclopedic first years where we offer students you know, bits and pieces of information for lots of regions around the world. And you could sort of see where you would see yourself fit. Um, and I think that that attracted me a significant deal to to that line of work, and I yeah, really, of course, never never looked back, as you, as you can obviously conclude. Um, but it is an interesting you know journey to see, and and why you go and do these things, because often I you know when I speak to colleagues or friends and uh, who are in this line of work in archaeology, they they will say, well, of course, I knew that I wanted to study archaeology, you know, from six years old. Right. This is this is what you hear quite often, right? That people are membership of have a membership of, of local heritage groups when they maybe, you know, are able to hold a shovel and they might have been on digs already before they start their undergraduate degree. Uh, that wasn't never really the case with me. I, I you know, as I say, I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And uh, this is something I tried to tell my own children as well, that you know, because they're approaching slowly that age where they where they can go to higher education and they and they're like, gosh, I don't know what I want to do. It's this and that, and it's very varied. And I say it's fine, you know. It's part of part of growing up as well. It's you know, you're young. You want lots of things. You don't know where to pick and what to choose and what way to go. Pick something, see if you like it. If it sticks, well, then you'll take the next step. You work as an associate professor mm-hmm. at Leiden, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, what does this mean, and how does this <laughs> <laughs> how does this compare to um, your other um, positions? Because you work at um, Wolfson College in right. Boulder in Colorado. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that, that's a, that's a good question because that, that hardly ever I think gets explained to students necessarily, and it's you know it may or may not be of interest, but it's basically when you're a, when you're a staff member, um, either. Uh, with a you know fixed term appointment, let's say for a number of years, or or a or a permanent appointment, there's effectively three grades or three types of positions that you can have as a um, as a as a, as a staff member at the doctorate level, let's say. So that's one is an assistant professor, that's the entry level post, and then you have an associate professor, and then you have a what you might call a full professor. And that differs a little bit per university system, how that's handled. So across Europe, that differs. In the UK, that's slightly different as well. And certainly in the US, it's it's quite different, actually, even though the terms that are used are the same. Um, so an, an assistant professor, in terms of duties and responsibilities, will be somebody who, who teaches, obviously, uh, has quite a significant po- component of his, of his workload, maybe, you know, three, three and a half days a week on average, uh, dedicated to teaching. A little bit of research and then a slight bit of of administration, which is basically anything related to faculty commissions, committees, um, you know, other types of overhead duties, you could call. Right. Um, If you do that well, um, you might 
be eligible for promotion to to an associate uh, professor level, uh, which burdens you a bit with a bit more faculty responsibilities as well, uh, both at the administrative level, but also in terms of teaching, right? So you're not just expected anymore to just do teaching, but also to design it, right? Maybe to coach assistant professors uh, in terms of how they teach and, and, and coordinate courses more fully, um, so to be a bit more on the on the vision side and the organizational side of teaching more broadly rather than just one course, um, and um, and if you do that well, then of course there's a level of the full professor which is dependent on on various variables. I mean it depends a little bit here at this faculty on whether, for example, in your region or in your perhaps you know, methodological orientation, if you're in the sciences, whether there already is a full professor, in which case it gets a bit more tricky, right? It's the thing about how many captains on a ship, all that kind of thing. Um, but of course, people, when there are full professors, they're also a little bit, you know, more advanced in their career, and some of them also retire, right? And then some of those positions open up. And then if the faculty is interested in continuing to push that particular region or, or scientific approach within the faculty, they will probably appoint a new full professor. And that's not necessarily always, you know, an associate professor who's already at the faculty. They might also try and hire somebody from outside. Um, and those are effectively the three types of positions you can have as a, as a, as a staff member here at Leiden. Now, in terms of my, my other duties, um, I'm a very fragmented individual. So I, I have these, uh, these posts that I, I drag with me, as it were, uh, and I, of course, I have part of my life in, in, in the UK, in Oxford, uh, where I'm affiliated as a research fellow to Wolfson College, which is one of the constituent colleges at, uh, at the university there. Uh, and, and a research fellow is, is, is a luxurious position where you don't really have to do a great deal, but you can do everything you want. <laughs> um, and there's a bit of support for that, but not, not much. So they don't pay me any salary or anything like that. But if, I, if I'm able to you know, if I want to organize something or travel a bit, there's usually means that the college can offer me to do so. Um, and then the last one in at the University of Colorado Boulder is where I spent some time. That's that's where I where I lived for some time as well, maybe 13 years ago or so. Uh, was a postdoctoral uh, student and a visiting professor, and um, that's a great university for for my my field of my line of uh, research specifically for Mesoamerican studies more broadly so i have great friends there at the faculty and i've always wanted to you know keep up that that affiliation uh with boulder um even though let's say it's largely ceremonial i don't do a great deal for it i don't unfortunately have a lot of room or time to travel there and teach which would be in the summer the only time you don't have to teach here so that doesn't really happen, um, and that's why that's also referred to as an adjunct position. An adjunct position is effectively also a, a non-salaried post that is, you could say, largely honorary uh, in nature. So I know earlier we were, um, there was a mention of just your many travel stories, and we mm. already kind of covered, you know, to um, Latin America and Mesoamerica, um, but I imagine um, since all these three places are in different countries. Mm. Um, how How is that commute like? <laughs> <laughs> tiresome. <laughs> it's tiresome and long. Yeah. No, it's 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 all right. It's not something I want to do until my retirement is what I always say. But um, for the moment, it's very busy because, you know, as I as I just mentioned at the beginning of the interview, I, you know, the, the block is just ending and I've had a lot of teaching at the beginning of the week, at the end of the week. So I travel up and down every week, uh, leaving tomorrow afternoon again, coming back on Monday. Um, 
and that's what I've been doing these these last few weeks, which you do begin to notice, right? I'm not 25 anymore, so that that's also a factor in it, I think. Um, yeah, it it keeps you busy, but it's it's a bit tiresome. It's a bit cumbersome, quite honestly. So I'm I'm trying to see if I can change that rhythm a little bit, but of course it's it's yeah, it's not straightforward. Is if both my personal life as my professional life is slightly scattered uh, around the globe, as it were. Luckily, it's not too far away. I mean, the United mm-hmm. Kingdom seems like a million miles away these days, but it's it's not. I mean, it's a couple of hours door to door, so it's quite doable. But it does add value to your life, I think, because you yeah. consciously decide to keep doing it. So I ah, that's a good point. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. It does add something. Yeah, this is uh, this is something I've asked myself a great deal as well daily in terms of why why you know why why am I not more strict in my decision making? Right, cut one thing out of my life and focus on one other thing entirely. And for some reason, you know, um, probably, to be honest, over my entire career, in some sense or form, that's always happened, that I've, I've accumulated rather than deselected um, occupations, uh, perhaps fields of interest, books. Uh, everything seems to accumulate, right? It's not like the positions are accumulating into the sky, but it's, it's still, it's rather odd to keep sort of having these things in your orbit, and not being able to just say, well, I have one job, one place where I live, and end of story. Um, but that's also, you know, in terms of research interests, what I, what I can't deny it, and that's what I, what I like. I like, you know, archaeological theory. I like uh, regional studies. I like critical studies as well. You know, I like interdisciplinary approaches. Um, so, if I'm able to sort of keep that, uh, keep that afloat, you know, why, why ditch these things, right? And people might say, well, you know, you're hard to profile, right? You're hard to, and I've had colleagues say this to me. So they'd say to me, so what is it that you actually do, Alex? When preparing this podcast, I can confirm. This was very <laughs> difficult. This was very difficult. Yeah. Because yeah. I, if you Google Alexander Hertz, mm. you find the Leiden page, you mm-hmm. find the Colorado Boulder page, mm-hmm. you find the Wolfson College page, you find the National Geographic page, mm-hmm. you find academia, you find there is pages and pages and pages <laughs> that all start with Alexander Hertz. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. very it's very uh, yeah. I've not I've I, I you know I, I'm, I promise you I'm not a narcissist who's who've, who's curated his Google uh, search results. So this is just this is the thing that happens, right? I just have these all these pages that drag behind me. Now some of them are not as actualized as they as they might be, I guess, but um, I just enjoy sticking my nose in different things uh, quite frequently. Yeah, and I do have to add that with the things you see, everything has a form of passion, a form mm. of a form of. It shows that you really like to do these things. Mm. It's just a lot. Yeah, <laughs> there's there's this yeah. awesome awesome thing I wanted to quote, and I didn't prepare it because I thought, well, it's not going to happen. But uh-huh. now that we're <laughs> now it's relevant here. We might as well go for it. It's, it's, I quote from the Leiden University page. Okay. Methodologi- methodologically, my work uh, embraces both archaeological field survey and excavations as well as museum collections. In thinking about collaborate archaeology, I also engage in semi-structured interviews, leading co-creative community constellations and advising on archaeological exhibitions in regional museums as part of Central America. Mm-hmm. That is, I put it in the questions. You seem like a one-man army archaeologist. <laughs> how how do you keep up with 
all that work and how do you draw the lines between the two things because be, between the two between the six things mm. how do you how okay. do you do that right um well the, the part of the consequence of this which makes it possible is that i i, I am unable to award sufficient amounts of time to each individual component of, of those things right that's definitely reality and I, i'm not going to hide that i would be much better off and might have profited more fully if i would just have focused on one or two things rather than all these things at the same time uh you know it's worked so far so you know being pragmatic i'd say okay that apparently works um but the other thing also is, is that when you draw boundaries and lines between things that you do you exclude uh connections that are actually there right so if you're doing survey and excavation that indirectly translates into museum collections as well right in terms of how people represent the past certainly in local or provincial museums in in latin america um and if that doesn't happen which is also a great deal what the reality of for example the museum world uh in parts of latin america is that that field reality of conducting archaeology and gaining insights in the field is very much disconnected to what we're seeing in museums which are highly curated often uh presenting very stable narratives that often are you know culturally historical in nature and uh, presenting a neat sort of closed off understanding of of the indigenous past uh and it doesn't all show the openness and the mutability of our understanding that is coming out of archaeological techniques right if that makes sense. So this and for me it's I think it's important to keep that connection open to say you know we're we're generating narratives here about say for example a sculptural collection in a museum at the same time we don't know this and we don't know that and we don't know such and so and we might be able to figure that out by doing exploratory surveys somewhere you know in in a in a tropical rainforest or something to see where those sculptures were actually located in what types of constellations you know were they located together or not were they deposited were they put up, erect upright somewhere um all of these things feed into those narratives that if if you exclude it right if you are more if you purify your activities you say well i only do survey or i only do excavation i don't meddle with you know um museum collections or museum debates then then you know who's going to do this right Of course you might say well can't you just be uh, I don't know interdisciplinary in approach and and incorporate a museum specialist in your team uh yes that's possible um you know um I'm I'm always open to invitations and and people who are interested but for the most part where I work th- there's no one there there's no one there right it's me I'm the only academic who's interested in archaeological things uh, at at a senior level let's say uh in that region so i kind of have to have an open door and in, invite those interests and topics and you know people showing up at my doorstep when i'm in nicaragua for example saying well i have this in my backyard do you want to come take a look what do i tell them no because i'm only focused on this and that or i don't have time sorry well maybe pragmatically i should but there's only one archaeologist that shows up right and if i say no what does that broadcast for sure yeah mm. and i do have to add as well to to my line of um well calling you out on all your activities <laughs> maybe in a sense that that in general what you see is that people that do such a thing are generalists and i mm. i definitely do not get that idea of the work you do i think mm. it's very i think you're an expert at every single one of these things at least for my bachelor archaeology view that is and and that that makes it 
well, I guess, applaudable in many ways, very respectable. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you, you're being very complimentary. Uh, probably a little bit too much so, Daily, but no, thank you very so. much. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think this is, it's important to sort of uh, diffuse that in your teaching as well, right? You mentioned the bachelor degree. And I think, you know, here at the faculty, we have this, we, we do purification as well, right? We have heritage, we have sciences, and we have, well, everything else, right? World archaeology or whatever you want to call it. Um, but these three things are, are continuously connected in all kinds of ways. Um, when I, you know, do my research, and perhaps when you individually design your research agendas as well, you will come into contact with heritage points of views, and you will do scientific analyses. So it doesn't mean you have to do all that yourself. And clearly, for example, when you're looking at the interface between, you know, for example, archaeological fieldwork and the processing and analyzing of, of, of samples uh, in a scientific way, in a lab setting, you know, th that's that's probably a bridge too far. You know, I don't know how to run an isotope analysis, right? I don't even know petrography, for Christ's sake. So I need other people to help me out with that, right? That's fair and square. But I can sort of see if I understand broadly what it entails and what it leads to, what kinds of insights it produces, and then to what extent those allow me to draw certain conclusions, right? And whether I'm happy with those conclusions or not based on those analyses. So that happens all the time, right? And in, I think in teaching, it's important to forefront that as well, um, to say that, you know, we're not just talking about, I don't know, the Inca empire, but what the concept of Inca also has, you know, nationalist interpretations and, and, and impacts in the 21st century in Peru or in Bolivia, right? So let's, let's, let's have a conversation about that, right? Those things are, you know, they're... they're the past is created in the present, right, over and over again. And um, if we sort of dislodge our understandings of, of, again, that example of the Inca Empire, make it into something that is sort of atemporal, that has always been there, has always been understood in a certain way, and it will always be in a, in, understood in that way. That's just wrong, because that's not how history develops, right? Uh, so we, we need to think about and incorporate and discuss the contemporary when we talk about the past. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, um, yeah I, I also agree as well. And I think um, this can bridge quite nicely into another question. Mm -hmm. um, and so what do you think is a good balance between teaching and researching? Hmm. Uh, f for me or? Maybe... For you, and also um, maybe if there's this, if you have a formula, it might, hmm. might other people could apply that for right, themselves as right. well. Yeah, I think, um, so, so teaching is about um, relaying knowledge, right, to students, you could say. And research is about asking questions and maybe identifying sore spots in terms of our, 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 our certainties of knowledge. I think if you bring the two together, that works. And I, I think I do that in my teaching on and off as well, but I try to be cautious with it f for the following reason, that if you, uh, certainly at the bachelor level, if you continuously confront students with uncertainties, right? This is what somebody has said about the Inca Empire, but really, who knows, right? If you say that too often in teaching, uh, I think students get this idea of, well, gosh, you know, what, what's relevant here? What is secondary? Is this just an opinion? I mean, what's 
what's the what's the individual weighing of of those statements and then it gets very slippery for students so you want to provide them with a canvas of sort of what you might call sort of reliable data or knowledge that they can sort of incorporate maybe memorize you know doesn't have to be in excruciating detail but have some sort of thing they can fall back on to discuss in this case for example ND in ND in pre-colonial times um, however at the same time you do somewhere want to say that you know if we talk about the Inca Empire we have to have a serious conversation about the notion of empire right where that comes from how that's conceptualized, how maybe you in your mind are now already thinking about the Inca in a certain way without even ever really connecting how that happened. Um, and that's more of a research sort of critical deconstructive approach to knowledge that invites conversation and dialogue in the classroom, uh, which you can do, but it, it's it's with a balance, I think. So, you know, in, in teaching itself, research has a place. Obviously, everything that you, you, you talk about is somewhere you know, has its origin in research, otherwise we, we wouldn't know about it. Obviously, that's a commonplace. But the uncertainty of conducting research, the, per definition, the openness of questions that you ask and you don't really know where you're going is something you have to be careful with in teaching, I think, at the bachelor level, certainly. I mean, if you get to the postgraduate level, you know, you're more in seminar settings, you're sitting around the table like we are, and it's more discursive, right? It's more going back and forth and see who has the best idea, see how you build an argument. That's that's very different, I think. So there's that difference between undergraduate and graduate level, um, you know, teaching more generally. Oh, that makes that makes sense. Um, so, other than I think this is also a very helpful thing for um, for bachelor students to hear. But mm. do you have any other tips for aspiring academics? <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. Um, uh, tips. Um, well, other than the, the, you know, the platitudes of, of work hard and pay attention, uh, which, you know, th they may be platitudes, but they're platitudes for a reason. It's because, yeah. you know, they, they have some sort of grain of truth, right? Uh, and, um, you know, when you go to meetings with your professor, make notes, right? bring a notepad. This sounds like an 18th century statement. But if, if you're asking people for advice, for example, and you show up and you're just sitting there going like, okay, 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 and you're not writing anything down, the person who's giving the advice might think, Hmm. Are you going to memorize all this when I say this to you? So the idea of, of paying attention is, I know it sounds old fashioned, but it does help in the end, uh, I think. But aspiring academics, if you want to aspire you know, a career in, in academia, you know, be realistic. That's another sort of deadpan, but the, the odds of, of achieving that are slim. However, here I'm sitting, I, I was facing those same odds. And for some reason or another, it worked. I say for some reason or another, because I'm not, I'm not a genius. I don't have a photographic memory. I'm not, you know, the best at everything. There was a lot of luck and being in the right place at the right time. Uh, there was, uh, you know, I was in a fortunate position to be offered opportunities by my supervisor, Martin Janssen, at the time as well, when I was a student, uh, which I happily, opportunistically latched onto with both hands. Right? That's probably one to keep in mind as well when when an opportunity arises recognize that that's happening and go for it you know go for it don't don't think well but i actually wanted to go you know to guatemala rather than to mexico or whatever that that's going to be secondary because if you're not if you're not going to mexico you're not going to guatemala either right so grab that opportunity explore it and see what comes out right 
um, that's very important as well. So, so be open, see the opportunities where they are, and, and don't be afraid to approach staff members as well. It's very important as well. Just knock on their doors, not incessantly. So otherwise, you know, I'm getting my <laughs> colleagues to complain about me saying that I'm, I'm chasing all the students through the hall. But don't be afraid to reach out to staff members. You know, it can also be during the coffee break or, or you know, after a class. You know, ask a serious question or you know, something that's on your mind. Because that will, in the end, flag something up with that staff member, right? They will, if you ask something once or twice, they'll know your name or they'll ask your name and they'll know who you are. And with so many students, you know, it's important to stand out a little bit mm-hmm. and to show your, your ideas and your character in that way. That helps, right, to get you maybe a little bit in the right position to maybe get an opportunity. Um, because if you just sit back and wait for things to come your way, that's, that's not going to that's not gonna work that way. There's too many people doing this, and the odds are too slim, and the places and the opportunities are too few for that to happen. So you need to, you need to be proactive and seek it out. Um, I think that's if you want to be an academic. I say I say that's that's one thing to to look for. I guess um, it kind of not all comes down to, but it definitely. I think a really important thing that's often overlooked overlooked is building relationships with mm. people who have like minded interests. Yeah. Um, and actually, I would say for any first year bachelor students listening, I know. I really wish I did more of that in my first year, mm-hmm. like going and talking to professors afterwards. I always had plenty of questions, right. but I never, after lectures, I just never, I felt, oh, it, I might be wasting their time. They just want to, you know, teach and then, uh, you know, go back to, you know, they prob- they're probably busy. I always mm-hmm. just kind of talked myself out of doing that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then once I, you know, I, that was really only the first year that I, um, that I didn't do that. And then once I started to do it later, I was like, oh, wow, I totally should have done this like from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And in a way, you know, it's understandable that first year students are, are hesitant to do so because it's, you know, the threshold of, 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 you know, knocking on a door literally of one of those professors, of course, significant. Uh, I appreciate that. I don't want to sort of say, oh, just do it and, you know, don't mind because you know, it is a big step. But it, yeah, as you say, I mean, it does, it does help you to sort of see that, you know, this is not an unapproachable person or anything like that. Quite the opposite, right? And I think, you know, uh, organisms such as Terra or in our America's case, specifically Johan de Laat, are also avenues which can facilitate that, right? Where you mm-hmm. can sit around maybe in the after hours or during a talk or whatever and see those professors outside of their usual habitat and being able to grab them, you know, while you're holding a beer or, or you know, a club soda or whatever, uh, and have a chat with somebody and, and say who you are and what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And boom, then you're on the radar, right? Yeah. It doesn't get you there, but it helps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is um, yeah, that is a very important thing. Also, another thing, it's what my dad told me before I moved here. And I didn't, I was like, I didn't take it super seriously, but then, yeah, he definitely was right. He always just said, like, build connections, build connections, build mm, connections. Yeah, that's probably the most important statement in this podcast. Take your father seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I have a daughter who tends to do her own things her own way, and that's fine. You know, it's absolutely, that's what, that's what you know, when you're growing up, that's what you have to do. Mm-hmm. But in the end, you know, no, okay, I said it already. Yeah. <laughs> well, definitely, I think it, it sticks better also when you end up figuring it out for yourself as well, rather yeah, than just absolutely. listening. Of course. And, 
and taking it just as it is. Um, And I don't know if this is going back as far as building relationships goes. Um, I was going to say earlier when we were talking about, um, you know, how it should be a more um, prioritized thing to take more time and like spend more time maybe living or traveling in the places that you're studying. Um, I definitely think that, uh, well, for one, as um, as a visual, I'm I would say I'm more of a visual learner. Um, mm-hmm. It is definitely difficult for me to do research or study a place that I've never set foot in. Mm. Um, but then also, um, I think that going to these places before you go and excavate and everything, it is really like it's to build building relationships with with locals or with um just anyone around so like you're already kind of assimilated and then Mm -hmm. coming with the actual project and everything afterwards right um i feel like that should definitely be the that should be the formula like the way to go with anything yeah and that also it makes sense because you know it's not just local communities that are obviously there it's also you know archaeological institutions and, and and local colleagues who have been working in these places for decades sometimes and when you sort of show up and you say, okay, I want like to excavate there and there, and they might say, well, we've been doing that for very long already. Do you want to hook up with us or what's the deal, right? Mm-hmm. And don't pretend like you're into this sort of terra incognita situation where you're parachuting in and you know, you're know you're you're the big light and savior coming to generate the archaeological data. Because in many of those places, there is something going on, right? Mm-hmm. Not everywhere, but certainly, you know, in Nicaragua, that's that's much more sparse. But in places like Peru or, or Mexico or, or Brazil, you know, there's there's hundreds, if not thousands of archaeologists working in those countries. So, uh, and they have very deep-rooted, you know, traditions in how they do research, where they do research. And you want to be mindful of that and, and connect with them as equally. Yeah, and all of this, of course, you know, takes time. And time is the most precious commodity that we have as a bachelor student because you're always, you know, weighing your weeks here and there. Um, and I secretly sometimes tell students, I don't know if I should go on the record for this, but, you know, if you can take more time, if you have the opportunity and the means to do so, do so. Because it, it will add value to your degree. Um, and I can't officially, you know, claim that student, students must do this and I never oblige them to do so either. But if you have the opportunity to say, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to kick this down a gear and see if I can take some time to know a place. Uh it it's such it's such an added bonus to your to your experience as a student, probably to your thesis work and to maybe to your chances afterwards as well. I definitely agree with that. Um do you have a dream research and what is it or maybe have maybe have you already started or completed your dream research (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think one of the things that you um that helps significantly in your building your career as an archaeologist is to document something that is unexpected or counters a lot of going narratives right how we understand a region or a period to have developed for example um i've done that a couple of times in the case of nicaragua and I've been very fortunate to do that. I've not done it on my own. This is with you know with many people that were involved in that over the years, um, and that that does really help. So if you want to, I don't know what if that would be a dream research, but it's definitely 
provided a lot of excitement, you know, to do some of the things that we've done, but documenting this, these stone sculptures in their original context, which hadn't been done before, or documenting very large monumental sites that weren't deemed to exist in this part of the world either. And that really sort of <clears throat> counters a going narrative on how the archaeology is understood beyond, you know, the, 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 the local level. Um, and that's not, that's not given, you can't, you know, you can't, uh, do predictive modeling on this because predictive modeling obviously goes on the known variables and, and that modeling would say that's not there. You know, you're not going to be able to find that. And when you do, what well, shows you the openness of archaeology, how little we know and how one find can really make an impact. I mean, I know that, you know, in the field of Paleolithic studies and human origins, they often have that dynamic going, right, where all of a sudden you find something that's, I don't know, 50,000 years older than you thought it would be or you find it in a place where it's not supposed to be and then everybody topples over one another to see you know oh the narrative has to be changed again um but that's not just you know restricted to the late paleolithic it's also you know it's also possible in our other archaeologies uh, but you need to be a bit fortunate and fortunate and if you do so then i think that that qualifies as a dream research because it's you know, it, it, it makes for interesting publications. It generates interest for granting bodies as well, you know, if you're looking for money. Um, and, um, yeah, it's all-round excitement, right? So if you if you find, you know, site X of which there have been documented maybe 30 already, it's useful and complementary. It's maybe not quite the same level of excitement. Uh, so I think that's, you know, have I done my dream research already? That's always, you know, one of these mid-career questions where you're going, <laughs> oh, no, you know, am I... Am I reflecting back more than I'm projecting forward? But maybe I am. That's okay too. But um, you know, I, I'm I'm happy with what I've achieved so far. So uh, when we um, decided to have you uh, as a guest on the podcast, we um, posted to the Terra Instagram account, and we announced that we were going to do this, mm -hmm. and we gave some students a chance to send in questions that they want us to ask you. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So we have two of them. We have two. Okay. Um, Let's start with that one. Yes. <laughs> we'll start. Um, so what has been your favorite fieldwork project thus far? Wow. Um, okay. Um, well, I've done a very different ones over the years. Some of them uh, small and disorganized and others much larger with more people and more organized although maybe sometimes because of those numbers of people not so organized and i think my 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 favorite field project would be one that's more small scale you know where i'm in the field with a number of people maybe a couple of shall we say highly motivated students um, that are flexible in what they can expect in field work and do the more exploratory stuff. I think that's that's really where my main passion lies to uh, do surveying in areas where nobody surveyed before. Um, I think that's what I'm probably best at. Uh, or I could also say I'm not so good at running entire large excavations uh, because of the organizational skills needed and the eye for detail and the patience that you need. Um, that's definitely not my strong point. Uh, so I think my favorite fieldwork would be something like that, you know, to talk to people locally in different places, ask them about certain materials, whether they have actually seen something somewhere, go and verify that uh, and build a data set based on that. And I've done that, you know, in the early, uh, let's say, I don't know, between 
2007 and 2010 or so quite regularly, and that was great fun. I still, you know, think back on that with with a lot of enjoyment. Th- those are the ones, some of the most challenging in logistically, um, in terms of you know how I would run it, and I would find myself, you know, taking a shower in a river somewhere in the tropics, right, <laughs> with people referencing that there may be caimans nearby, and there's like all these types of things. Or, you know, sleeping in a tent and then finding it recovered in the afternoon, being trampled by 15 cows. But, you know, that's the stuff that sticks in your head, mm-hmm. right? That's the stuff that sticks in your head. So, yeah, I think that's that would be my favorite fieldwork experience. Well, that sounds like the dream excavation for me <laughs> specifically. Well, it was very wet and sticky, so you <laughs> might you might reconsider, Grace, once you're there. Can I ask a quick question before we do the second Instagram question? Go for it, yeah. Um, with your uh, time with working with National Geographic, did you ever have, you know, because they have their specific formats and their rules for the filming and everything, did Mm -hmm. you ever have some disagreements or maybe like, you know, they told you to do something and you you did it, but you didn't really like it, anything like that? Yeah, that that's 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 a concern. I think that's you know shared by many of my colleagues who are sponsored by National Geographic. And I, the first thing I should say is that they're massively generous with their research funding, right? And they are one of the few granting bodies that actually uh, is loyal to grantees as well, in the sense that they you know are interested in in continuing uh, to support individual grantees sometimes multiple times, right? So I received funding from them uh, a fair amount of times, and it's not like they you know it's not like a one done one one and done deal. Um, at the same time, they're also a very large media outlet, right? Uh, you know, they're owned by Disney, I think, these days. Mm-hmm. So there are all kinds of, as you go, if you scale up in terms of how Disney overall wants to present its its media character, let's say, there are certain tropes and pre-understandings that they don't mind having represented in all these scientific elements that they present, right? Whether, you know, anything from Discovery Channel to, to National Geographic, television the channel itself will have these types of things and then there's the magazine and the social media outlets which are you know have a have a footprint that is unprecedented really so if you want to talk about outreach you know you got millions and millions of people on instagram following that stuff um so you are sometimes you know in conversations with let's say granting officers so the people who would administer those types of programs for nat geo who are completely mindful an understanding of the concerns that, in this case, archaeologists would have about not being represented like some Indiana Jones or anything like that. Um, but they are also, in a way, you know, with, tied with their hands behind their back in terms of their, their, their media executives that are above them, right? Which mm-hmm. are simply saying, you know, this is too sciencey, this is too nuanced, there are too many ifs and buts in here. It needs to be more straightforward, more definitive, you know, more linear, all these types of things. And that sometimes is a struggle. But you know, I tell them, you know, I guess, yeah, if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. I, you know, I've had instances where I had a cameraman in the, in the field and they, um, they said something along the lines of what well, can we go to that, that bit of forest? And I said, okay, why? <laughs> and it was because they wanted to sort of see me, film me, you know, find my way into the forest with a machete. And at halfway I through, I said, you know what, this is, this is ridiculous because I'm not, you know, I'm just, I'm just regenerating certain visual stereotypes that uh, I don't need to be in this bit of forest. You know, I'm excavating right there, not here. So why don't we just do that? So you you are you have that tension. You have that tension. But I always say as well, you know, if we wouldn't have Nat Geo 
as an outlet, us, I think as a discipline, you know, at least now you have a forum on which you can try to bring on nuance rather than no forum at all. Because what's the next thing, next step up? If you, if you go down to National Geographic, what, what else is there? Archaeology magazine. Right, right, mm -hmm. exactly. But that's a very, still very sciencey yeah. and kind of local, I guess. Yeah, 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 precisely. Yeah, and there's a number of those popular science magazines around, but in terms of the impact and the readership, you compare that to what, what Nat Geo does, it, it pales in comparison. Right? Yeah, so I, I have to admit, Nat Geo is probably one of the biggest outlets in the world yeah. in general, yeah. yeah, apart from science. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, yeah, I think a couple of years ago I looked into this. I think it's one of the most visited websites at the time, period. Yeah. Period. Yeah. So, you know, if you if you make it to the front page of that kind of stuff, there's immediate sort of, you know, uh, let's say academic capital that flows from it. Yeah. Right? In mm -hmm. terms of opportunities, yeah. people know about your site. And uh, for me, this is important as well, as I work in a country that, you know, in, in, in Nicaragua, for example, unfortunately at the moment, there's not even a free press, but that's another matter. But in terms of how much people read or how much they see, you know, they get their information through social media on their phone, right? Instagram and all that kind of thing. And Nat Geo is very much represented there. Um, but they don't read National Geographic magazine. I mean, there is one. There's also one in Spanish. But that doesn't make it all the way into the smaller communities, right? You might mm -hmm. have a couple of, you know, might have one distributor in, in Managua in the capital or something doing that. But that's so that's not going to reach. You need you need that deep social media input to be able to reach people locally. Yeah. Yeah, I guess there's no um, Vogue archaeology magazine. <laughs> At least one <laughs> as big as Vogue. <laughs> Uh, magazines overall are struggling, aren't yeah. they? I mean, have been for years because they're being overtaken left and right online and, and readership and uh, print magazines are just, you know, I don't want to say they're moribund, probably not yet, yeah. but it's it, they're, they're really struggling to, uh, to keep their readership afloat, right? Yeah. Well, so, of course, speaking of social media, our second and final uh, Instagram question. Yeah. Was we were very confused by this one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's see if I can so, untangle it. Um, they want a fun fact about pineapples. <laughs> does yeah. that sound familiar? <laughs> Is there something? Yeah, it does. <laughs> it does sound familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I mentioned this in a class the other uh, day. Yeah, that I'm a fan of pineapples. <laughs> no, yeah. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that is really well, good. pineapples are, of course, you know, if you, if you look at the Colombian exchange, this idea coined by Alfred Crosby uh, at some point in the last century about, you know, the exchange back and forth of, of materials and goods and germs and people between, you know, across the Atlantic, right, between Europe and, and the Americas after its discovery. Well, one of the most predominant and, and most eye-catching elements to reach Europe was, of course, the pineapple, wasn't it? Oh. This rather unusually looking fruit uh, that would uh, accrue, you know, uh, a prominent role in, in, in high society in cross parts of Europe um, uh, as, it, as it became more and more, you know, available and would be um, uh, grown also in, um, um, in across parts of Europe as well. And it, it, it featured regularly, you know, in high society dinners or the, as a centerpiece on the table, for example. Um, not just because it's a lovely sweet fruit to eat as well, very sugary and so on, but also because of its you know exquisite sort of rather rather eccentric form. 
uh, and it, it returns in architectural details. There's even, you know, in, in, in England, for example, there's even buildings that are, are constructed in the shape of a pineapple. You might think, hmm, aesthetically, maybe not the best choice, but <laughs> the, the fascination with that so-called Prince of Fruits, as it was known, uh, runs deep, right? And I think somewhere in a class not too long ago, I mentioned that I, I'm quite fond of pineapples, which made everybody laugh. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that that's probably why that's confusing. <laughs> now yeah. we understand where yeah. we figured there would be something like that. We just didn't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was definitely it. Yeah, that is good. That was a credit to the person who asked that question. <laughs> yeah, very funny. Yeah. What needs to happen until March of 2023? So this next year, starting now, um, for it to be a successful year. Mm, for me. Um, let's see. Uh, well, I think, uh, yeah, just, it's sort of a dry fact, but I'm applying for a rather large research grant at the moment. And I actually, I think in March 2023, that should be uh, known whether I've actually obtained it or not. So if I do, then, you know, it, I'll be very happy. I'll be very happy. That's a big five-year thing with lots of money and, and people involved, um, which will really allow me to sort of, you know, build another layer to my research agenda. And that's due in a couple of weeks. So I'm, I'm actively working on that at the moment. It's, it's a multi-stepped process and it might kick me out, you know, somewhere before the summer already. But if I survive uh, long enough, um, who knows, I might, I might have that. Uh, by the end of uh, or by the, by the start of next year, that would definitely make it very successful. Um, what else? Um, yeah, I think that's probably the most important one. Quite honestly, uh, in terms of you know research, yeah, staying sane. Staying sane is very important. <laughs> yeah, going outside, you know, enjoying the sunshine, seeing some art, mm -hmm. not working all the time. Uh, you're absolutely right, uh, Daily. I mean, finding balance is very important as well, and that's also something. You know, here comes you know grandfather's stories but as you i'm 47 now and um you reach this point where you're thinking hmm am i doing certain things too much rather than other things you know where's the balance in these things like we've touched upon already uh i guess that's another good point if i could reach some sort of balance in life um uh, in a year's time that gives me a bit of time to do so right it's realistic then i'd be happy as well maybe go outside a bit more not always worry about the agenda and the email and all these types of things, but also just sort of relax. I think yeah. that's a very, very healthy and human wish, desire. Yep. I hope everyone has that desire, actually. Yeah. Absolutely. I hope everyone can achieve that as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, And good luck. I wish you luck with the grant. Well, <laughs> thank you. I appreciate exciting. that. Yeah. yeah. All right, so... Um, now is the time if you want to promote anything or maybe give a last piece of advice to students or just anything. Um, maybe, you know, if you, maybe you have an event you want to promote or something, uh, now is your time to do that. It's kind of open. Okay. Okay. All want. right. Okay. Um, you can promote anything. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, um, you know, the only thing I, I I I'm not really a promoter, so I I'll, I'll I'll let people find me if they want to find out something. Right? <laughs> I think that's better. I, there's a lot of you know chest beating here and there at this faculty sometimes, and I'm not I'm not partial to that. But um, one thing I'd I'd say to students more generally is that 
it's very important to try and identify what drives you in in this in this in this in this work in this discipline in your field of interest because if you can identify what is your passion and and where you as a person uh get most excited about that's going to give you the most energy if not an endless amount of energy to keep going on it right and you might think yeah but that's something completely you know separate of of archaeology it might have to do with i don't know swimming or knitting or playing the guitar or taking a walk with my dog or whatever or reading a reading fantasy novels I mean, it could be anything right but try and pinpoint why you are here there is a reason somewhere interlinked to your passion right maybe something local maybe something to do with your parents or your siblings or where you grew up identify that and see if you can incorporate it you know in your research interests because we always tend to think about research interests as like, oh, okay, now I have to be official, right? Um, my supervisor is asking me about my research interests. Well, uh, it's A, B, C, and D. So it's almost like it's separate of who you are. And you can do that. You can play that game. You can sort of, you know, be the poster individual and say, yeah, I'm interested in such and so, without ever really connecting it to who you are as a person. But that's going to burn out at some point. Uh, and it may get you through your bachelor degree. It may even get you through your master's degree. But I think you'd be more happy and more satisfied with that work and end up with more potential afterwards if you're able to somehow link it up to who you are as a person. Because we're all individuals here, commonplace, sorry, but it's true. We're not, you know, automatons who are all bachelor students. It's, you know, it's it's Grace and Daly. And, and you two are different in where you come from and what you want and where you think you might go. And that's that has to be linked into your commitment to archaeology, I think hope that's not too abstract i think that's really important to have a have a think about sometimes to say am i really still linked to who i am as a person in terms of what i'm doing here on a daily basis in this faculty building yeah and especially in the field that we're in in archaeology the good thing is that all the things we do today that people used to do in the past as well so if you have something you're very passionate about today then probably you can research that in archaeology yeah. which is a, a big perk yeah. in terms True. of yeah, absolutely. Future, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I, I have one last question then. And it's it's a question I don't really like the formulation of. Okay. Because it insinuates a lot. But would you rather have shitty archaeology that is super famous throughout the world and in the general public or amazing archaeology that is very much ivory tower academia type of thing you see why i don't like the formulation yeah of yeah, question? yeah 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 that's an old rhetorical strategy eh? yeah absurdum. so you're sketching two extremes which are obviously equally wrong right yeah. you you want you want to be somewhere uh, in the middle and as i say i think you know if if you're if you're being pragmatic about your approach to archaeology, I think that helps in life in general, right? So see what the consequences are of how you present things in a certain way. And that sometimes it's okay to, you know, um, go down deeper into your level of detail and seriousness, quote-unquote, uh, about how you narrate archaeology. Because it also depends on who you're dialoguing with. You know, if you're at that stereotypical birthday party and your aunt asks you what you're doing... You know, you're not going to be reciting an article, are you? Because then she'll tune out after four and a half seconds. So you want to um, use a vocabulary and a way of dialoguing with people that connects. I think that's the most important thing, right? And sometimes the only thing you have to be mindful of is that it's respectful, right, towards the subjects that you're talking about. Uh, so not using stereotypical colonial tropes or anything like that. 
because uh, you don't really need that. You don't need that talking to your aunt either, you know. And that's something you can filter out, I think. So as long as you do that, you're fine. And then you can you can, you can level it up or down in terms of the level of detail or generalization. Because uh, generalization doesn't mean that you're being disrespectful or 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 misconstruing the reality that you perceive. It just means that you're filtering out detail, right? So I think that's where the that's what I would answer to that. So it's neither, right? It's somewhere in the middle. Okay. All right. That's I like that answer. Okay. Um, can I now be very mean and can we do a little role play? We're at the party, hmm. and um, I am your aunt in this setting, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I come up to you and I say, "Hey, Alex, if I can say Alex, uh, what do you do?" Well, how, how would you answer? Well, Aunt Daly, nice to see you again. <laughs> I like that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, it, well, it depends a bit, I guess, whether she would know what I do in, in a general sense or not. But yeah. uh, let's say she let's say she doesn't, right? Uh, I would probably say something along the lines of, well, you know, what I do is I, I study the human past. You know, I, I look at what people did, you know, in, in, specifically in my case in parts of Central America. And, and, and I look at sort of what kind of traces that has left behind, right? What kinds of things we can still recover from um, activities and ways of life of maybe a millennium or longer ago, right? And then you on daily might say, oh gosh, that's so long ago. How do you do this, right? And then I might say something along the lines of, well, we have all kinds of techniques, you know, and equipment where we can filter out and age things and date them properly to see if we can build an image of what life looked like back then, right? Which was radically different from our life today, for sure, you're thinking about probably small communities with little round houses and thatched roofs, and um, uh, people didn't have very domesticated, very much domesticated animals around them. For example, there's nothing like that, right? There was no metal, there were no wheeled vehicles, right? People weren't flying around in the sky. These were all small-scale communities that were probably had a livelihood that consisted of you know, gathering plants here and there, maybe foraging, having small gardens where they grew things, and perhaps occasionally going, you know, hunting for deer or rabbits or things like that. And that's, and the traces of that, bits and pieces we, 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 we can find through archaeology, right? Little bits of bone of that, of that deer, for example, or arrow points which were used to actually kill that animal, uh, or we find small remains of those houses. And it's like a puzzle, right? So trying to bring that together. And you're never going to get all the pieces of the puzzle uh, because you only find a few of those pieces and many of those pieces have bits broken off as well. So it's up to you a little bit about how you construct that puzzle, I think. And that's also the responsibility of our work to see you know, how we do that, that we're accountable to how we do it, right? That somebody can come up to me and say, hey, Alex, how did you come up with that idea about that community a thousand years ago? And then I'm able to sort of go back and say, well... It's based on this, and it's based on that. Um, I don't know if the aunt is still in the room now, or whether <laughs> whether she's <laughs> delicately gone off to the toilet. But uh, that's maybe something I would say. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you learned a lot. Thank you very much, Dr. Hertz, for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no worries. Thank you very much, Grace, for joining us. You're welcome, and thank you for having me as the co-host again. Always. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Um, we'll see when that comes out because of exams and things. Um, well, well, anyway, we'll see you in the next one. And I hope you have a great day. Enjoy the weather. Go out. Um, visit a museum. 
Absolutely. Yep. See ya.